Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 150, and as promised, it's the epilogue episode that relates to the story of Pepe San Romain. As you'll recall, Pepe was the commander of Brigade 2506, and it's also an epilogue related to the Alabama National Guardsmen who flew those final missions in the Bay of Pigs invasion. They were those few Americans that fought and died for the cause alongside the Cubans at the Bay of Pigs. The idea of doing a short epilogue came to me after a stunning moment as I was completing some of the research on the Bay of Pigs series. I wanted to do more on Pepe San Romain, and after I got done reading all the material that I had gathered about him, I quickly googled him to see if there was something more or more relevant in terms of what happened to him after he returned to the United States after his imprisonment in Cuba following the Bay of Pigs invasion. I was stunned when one of the first articles that popped up before me on the internet was an article that showed his age at death. He was only 58. Well, immediately I wondered whether he had perhaps contracted cancer or perhaps had something else tragic happen. So I began to search a little more and quickly I came across an article that appeared in the Washington Post. It's an article entitled, The Last Casualty of the Bay of Pigs. And it was written by Myra McPherson and it appeared in the Post on October 17th, 1989. By the time I finished reading it, I couldn't hold back the tears for this man, for someone I never knew. But because I knew more of his own heroism in 1961 because of the work that we've all done together, what I read in this article about him was all the more richer. But it also made his ending, to me, all that more tragic. And so I thought, all of you as listeners of the podcast, after having just gone through such an intense immersion with me into the story of the Bay of Pigs, that all of you would be in a position to especially appreciate the epilogue related to Pepe. I can't do this story justice by paraphrasing it, so I am just going to read the article to you now. So here goes. Here's to you, Pepe. On a Saturday evening not too long ago, Jose Perez San Romain carefully vacuumed his two-bedroom mobile home, left his mementos in orderly piles, painstakingly wrote his last letter to friends and family, then measured out enough medication to ensure an overdose. The former commander who in times past stood with President Kennedy as throngs cheered 
planned his death as meticulously as he had orchestrated military maneuvers. His brother, Roberto, found San Romain's body in bed, dressed in trousers and shirt, arms at his sides, close to his body. In position like a soldier, recalls Roberto, as tears came to his eyes. San Romain's suicide came last month at the age of 58, but friends and family believe he died 28 years ago on the beaches of Cuba when he was the 29-year-old commander of the 1,500-strong 2506 Brigade of Cuban Soldiers. Then, on April 17, 1961, he watched in horror as his troops were slaughtered in the Bay of Pigs invasion as they waited in vain for promised support from the United States. There were many tragedies of the Bay of Pigs assault. The lost life of Jose Pepe San Romain was a consummate sorrow. A cadet and officer who earned highest honors in his native Cuba, San Romain was picked by the CIA to command the invasion because of qualities everyone remembers. He was steady, professional leadership tempered with goodness. He was also remarkably trusting, a man who had absolute faith in the support he was going to get, recalls Alfredo Duran, another Bay of Pigs veteran. That is why he could call on the brigade to salute the Cuban flag as it was raised at sunset on the transport ship Blogger as they neared the coast of Cuba. The Cuban national anthem was sung. They were invincible. Liberation was theirs. Roberto, who fought at his brother's side during the three-day battle, said, During our military upbringing in Cuba and through all the barrage of movies from Hollywood, we always thought the might of the United States Armed Forces was such that they would succeed in whatever they got involved in. As plans changed from guerrilla warfare to a task force brigade, we thought there is no chance that Castro can win. One of the things that always bothered my brother later was that he never questioned any of the American plans. The guilt and sorrow and sense of betrayal that haunted Pepe San Romain for the rest of his life began in those frantic last hours at Playa Garan. San Romain's pleas for help to the blogger remain chilling to this day. At dawn, you can hear him saying, Do you people realize how desperate the situation is? Do you back us or quit? All we want is low-jet air cover, needed badly or cannot survive. An hour later at 6.13 a.m., he would say Blue Beach, under attack, where is promised air cover. At 7.12 a.m., enemy on trucks coming from Red Beach are right now three kilometers from Blue Beach. At 8.15 a.m., situation critical, need urgently air support. Then at 9.14 a.m., where the hell is jet cover? At 9.55 a.m., can you throw something into this vital point in the battle? Anything, just let jet pilots loose. The messages came quickly toward the end. In water, out of ammo, enemy closing in. Help must arrive in next hour. Send all available aircraft now. In his book, The Bay of Pigs, Haynes Johnson wrote, Through all the chaos and despair of defeat, Pepe retained the calm that was his hallmark. 
Those who heard him on the radio that day heard the quiet voice, sounding more tired, edged more with anger and bitterness, but still determined and calm. The weary men fought on the cries of the wounded echoing in the broiling sun. Pepe saw a best friend in a jeep lying there, bleeding all over as if he had exploded inside. He was lying there as a person that is going to die very soon, he told Johnson, and he had the courage to tell me, I may not see it, but I am sure we will win. And then he shouted, and I will never forget it, beat them, beat them. Shortly after four that afternoon, San Romain sent his last message before retreating to the woods with what was left of his brigade. I'm destroying all my equipment and communications. Tanks are in sight. I have nothing to fight with. I cannot wait for you. In remembrance, Roberto at 54 looks like the comfortable businessman he now is. Warrior toutness has given way to a slight paunch. Wounded in those last hours of battle, Roberto escaped, but he was 20 days at sea before rescue, thinking that his brother was dead. Pepe San Romain, in turn, was convinced of his younger brother's death. Fidel Castro, confronting his prized prisoner in San Romain's cell, told him a month later that Roberto was alive. Roberto's voice cracks as he looks back over Pepe's life. His golden promise the days of battle, and almost two years of prison. Then, fame and obscurity, and the ordeal of trying to survive the demons of his memories. If all this had not happened in Cuba, he would have lived all his life a happy man, Roberto believes. Historical accounts praise the valor of the Cuban soldiers against impossible odds. Blame for the bungled mission centered on the CIA and the Kennedy administration, but this was no consolation for Pepe San Romain. The commander was, in effect, a one-man metaphor for the feelings of betrayal, defeat, and survival guilt that would later haunt a generation of Vietnam veterans. He took the defeat all into himself, says Johnson, who spent months with San Romain while writing the book. He was a sweet, sweet person, if that term can be applied to a military commander. Says Roberto, we all felt, and he should have felt, that we were proud of having hit Castro the hardest with so little supplies. That was enough for me to survive the betrayal. But being in charge, Pepe just couldn't. A Cuban youth, San Romain, a bright and artistically inclined youth, was called by his nickname Pepe. His family was poor, and their bid for respectability and local prominence came through the Army. His father, a second lieutenant at the age of 18, was a self-made officer. His greatest desire was that his sons get an education. He insisted that his children study English at night. When we came to this country, says Roberto, we learned what a gift our father had given us. Unable to afford the university in Havana, Pepe and Roberto went to military school, where they quickly excelled. Pepe ranked first in his class and became Captain Cadet, in charge of 250 cadets. I was First Sergeant Cadet, recalls Roberto with a smile. I was supposed to be tough, and I was. But Pepe's style was different. 
Instead of you do this and you do that, first he talked to them, got their cooperation, and always gave a person a chance. Always. Even though he was strict, he would always let you know what you had to do not to get into trouble. Driven to excel, Pepe started to work at 15. But I can remember him helping others, staying up at night to help classmates with physics and calculus, says Roberto. For years, the younger brother cherished the intricate hand-carved toys, buses complete with passengers, for example, that Pepe created for him. All his life, Pepe clung to pictures of a distant time in Cuba. They were among the keepsakes given to his family with a suicide letter. His 1953 cadet yearbook shows a handsome, slim, 22-year-old winning a trophy for excellence in horseback riding. It was a life of fencing, jumping horses, long infantry marches, rumba dances with men in ceremonial dress uniform and their dates in crinolines. Studious Pepe said his main ambition was to gain some weight and sell his Lincoln for $50 and to sleep. He met and fell in love with a neighborhood girl and they married very young. They divorced about 10 years ago when Pepe was no longer the man she once knew. After training in the States at Fort Benning, Georgia, where he graduated fourth among 81 men in 1956, Pepe returned to Cuba and Fulgencio Batista's army. But the San Romains, father and sons, abhorred the excesses of Batista's army, and they were among a group of officers arrested for a conspiracy to overthrow Batista. It was the first of three times that Pepe San Romain would face Cuban jails. My brother and I were in the same cell, recalls Roberto. They tortured us psychologically. What was going to happen to our family? How they were going to hurt our father? Two months later, Batista left. And that same day, we became the heroes of the same people who had us in jail. Although the San Romains did not side with Castro, they tried to make things work in the earliest days of the revolution. Pepe was among a group of officers commissioned to clean up and restructure the army. Roberto was in hiding because he had been among Batista's troops who fought Castro in the mountains. My brother was able to get a lot of friends out of jail. He was the one who always hid me in different places. Pepe helped many to escape to the United States until he was arrested, this time by Castro. When released in 1959, Pepe and Roberto left for the United States. Roberto recalls the terrible sense of guilt and strain as we left our family behind. We had no promise of any kind of financial aid to our families. It bothered him and me a lot. But we were thinking that we'd be back in Cuba in a year or six months. Their parents, wives, and children were able to follow them to Miami at the time the two brothers were training to return to liberate our homeland with the Bay of Pigs invasion. After the debacle, for 20 months, San Romain had ample time to brood over the Bay of Pigs debacle as he languished in Castro's prison. He was often in solitary confinement and never had a visitor. In a letter to his father, he wrote, I had to order the troops to retreat. God help them. I told myself what right do I have to order my men to sacrifice their honor? What right do I have to order men to go on building Cuban widows only for honor? Our purpose was not to kill Cubans. 
Our purpose was to win a war that will help bring peace and happiness to all Cubans. And this war was lost to us. Later, he was to write how he hated the United States and felt that I had been betrayed. Many times I had the feeling that we were thrown there to see what happened because they were sure that Fidel was going to capture us and put all of us in the firing squad and we would be killed and there would be a great scandal in the whole world. San Romain and two other brigade leaders were placed in the Bartolinas, the worst cells. And I thought that only a pig could live there, San Romain told Johnson. Rats and cockroaches filled the dark cell. The toilet was a hole in the floor. At one point, they were allowed to join the men of Brigade 2506, and San Romain immediately assumed command, ordering his men to wear black armbands and form honor guards when they learned that five prisoners had been shot. Castro seemed fascinated with his major adversary and visited his cell for long talks. In Johnson's book, San Romain related to how he talked back to Castro, decreeing the acts of a Castro officer who had put San Romain's men on that trailer truck and killed ten of them. That was a crime. That was assassination. Castro shouted, San Romain, you don't deserve to live. Replied San Romain, that is the only thing that we agree about. I don't want to live anymore. I have been played with by the United States, and now you are playing with me here. Kill me, but don't play with me anymore. Castro reportedly walked away. After 20 months of waiting while the United States and Castro haggled over the terms and the amounts of money, brigade prisoners were finally ransomed for more than $50 million in food and medical supplies. It was nighttime in December 1962 when the last plane load of released prisoners landed in Miami. San Romain was asked to disembark first so that the brigade members could salute him. Waiting among other brigade members who had escaped was his weeping brother, Roberto. Taken by bus to ecstatic mobs, Pepe San Romain was engulfed by brigade members who tried to take us on their shoulders, recalled San Romain in Bay of Pigs. Then I saw my mother and then I saw my wife and I ran to them, but the crowd wouldn't let me get to them. Finally, I got to them and I almost killed my mother and my wife and my kids with the embrace I gave them. It was a very great moment because I never thought I would see them again. He heard the words of praise coming from the microphones as if off in a distance, hearing little of what was said because I was just crazy with happiness. It was one of the last times Pepe San Romain would feel such total joy. Beyond the homecoming, at their homecoming celebration, 80,000 cheered San Romain and the other warriors in the Orange Bowl as Jacqueline Kennedy spoke in Spanish of their bravery, and the president stood solemnly beside San Romain. But all too soon, San Romain was left with the lonely ordeal of trying to forget. For a while, his friendship with Robert Kennedy helped. For several months, the Kennedys provided San Romain and his family with a furnished home near them at Hickory Hill. Some evenings, Robert Kennedy would ride over, bringing an extra horse for San Romain, and they would ride off into the woods of McLean, Virginia. San Romain's letters from Ethel and Robert Kennedy, warm and personal, 
were among the souvenirs left to his family at his death. The question is asked after the sense of betrayal felt by San Romain and so many members of the brigade how they could work again with the Kennedys and the United States. Many of them joined the Army and the CIA. Roberto, who was sent by Robert Kennedy to Central American countries to seek aid for a second invasion, there was nobody else in this hemisphere that wanted to help us. The only open door for Pepe's men, whether financial help or education or another try at Cuba, was the American government, the same government that left us there. And so Pepe ate his words and his pride and went with them. Roberto believes the Kennedys had a sense of guilt and wanted to help, but even those offers were slights to San Romain's talents. Pepe doesn't know what he was going to do, and he told Robert Kennedy that he wanted to work with his hands. He was a beautiful artist, says Roberto, producing a detailed sketch that Pepe once did of Roberto's daughter. So what does Kennedy find for him? A construction job at the lowest pay and the hardest work, moving concrete blocks. And then Pepe would come home from work and maybe find Kennedy waiting to go on a horseback ride with him. What kind of insensitivity was that? I could never believe it, said his brother. San Romain decided to join the army. That's what he knew how to do. Roberto starts pacing the floor in agitation. Instead of fighting communism in Cuba, 90 miles away, we had to go across the world to fight communism. San Romain was now a paratrooper in the Special Pathfinders Unit, and when he got orders to go to Vietnam, Roberto planted the seed that he should resign. Mal Haig told him that he was going to be court-martialed, accusing him of cowardice, Roberto recalls today. It was one of the few times that San Romain ever pulled rank, so to speak, and it was in June of 1965, and he wrote to Lyndon Johnson. Bitterness laces the letter as he writes about the United States' decision to back off from supporting the 2506 Assault Brigade, which I commanded in order to protect the best interests of this big nation and the world. As the late president told me, this morning I talked by phone to Colonel Haig to explain the situation and tell him I wanted to resign my commission. Colonel Haig felt that he had the right to insult a veteran of two wars against communism and implied that I was in the service just for the money and that I was trying to get off now just because of the risks involved. I think you will agree with me, Mr. President, that the methods of this gentleman are not the best to make friends among allies. Shortly after, San Romain received an honorable discharge. A pink carbon of his letter to the president remained with San Romain to his death. Roberto now says, so that was another disillusionment, another lack of respect from the army to him. Down and out, eventually, San Romain, his wife, and four children settled in Miami, near Roberto. San Romain drifted in and out of jobs. He was a boat dealer at 39, a truck operator at 50. He moved to Houston in 1982, and he managed three tractor-trailer accommodation trucks. During the Texas oil crisis, he closed the business and returned to Miami in 1986. The last decade of his life was especially troublesome to family and friends as they watched his depression and pain. He couldn't communicate 
couldn't concentrate, says Roberto. His bitterness toward the United States had subsided, but he still lived the invasion. Many brigade members, like Roberto, refused to get involved in the Bay of Pigs Veterans Association. The meetings, anniversaries, and celebrations. Perhaps for me, it was an automatic way of survival and peace of mind, muses Roberto. For others, however, the Bay of Pigs was the penultimate moment in their lives, to be invoked even in sorrow. Brigade friends toasted their commandant, Pepe San Romain, this past summer at a tribute that raised $6,000. But San Romain's depressions deepened, and once again he and his brother worked side by side, but this time it was in the world of business, not battle. Roberto set aside a corner of his marine supply store for Pepe, who made, sold, and installed vertical blinds. It was doing very well compared to before, says Roberto. But ten days before his death last month, San Romain began planning his end. He gave some pending business to a cousin, his sister, Lali de la Cruz, who Roberto managed to get out of Cuba so many years ago, returned home one night in the last week to find a message on her machine from Pepe. My sister, it is very late and you're not home. I just called to tell you, I love you very much, and don't you ever forget it. His sister nervously dialed Pepe's number, got no answer, slept very little, and called again early the next morning. There was no answer. She went to the store and told Roberto, who sent her immediately to Pepe's home. As Pepe greeted her, his sister made believe that she had just stopped by to say hello on the way to work. Roberto saw his brother only twice that week at work. Pepe instead visited his grandchildren, bringing trinkets of marbles and small coins. Then on Saturday night, September 9th, Roberto phoned about 8 o'clock and Pepe told him his leg hurt from a flare-up of phlebitis. I said, on Monday, let's make a tour of the medical supply houses and find out if there is a machine like a water massage for your leg, Roberto recalls. He says his brother replied, Sure, let's do that on Monday. I asked him what he was doing, and he said, I am writing. I didn't like that, because normally when he writes, he is depressed, mulling over the same things. Late at night, he cleaned the house, put everything mentioned in the letter in sight so that we could find them. Then Pepe drove to the home of an uncle and placed his final letter in one of the cars. On Sunday morning, when his aunt found the letter, she frantically called Pepe's sister, who called Roberto, and then 911. When I arrived, recalls Roberto, the police were already there. The letter was addressed to his entire family in order. Two sons, two daughters, his sister and brother uncles and cousins. San Romain ordered his body cremated and the ashes sprinkled in the Brazos River in Texas, where he once played with his children. The ashes stayed in a closet in Roberta's home until Sister Lolly took them to Texas last weekend. He gave his avocado tree and a book on Cuba to Roberto, his paratrooper jump master wings to his sons. 
the day Roberto and Lolly had dreaded for years, had arrived. As he read the letter now, Roberto does not stop the tears that touch his cheeks. In his elegant script, Pepe San Romain wrote, Great is the sorrow for the shock I am about to give you. I am sorry, but I have to do it. There is no other way. This decision is taken after 20 years of struggle against myself. You all know that I have fought back with all my might, with all my will, and tried every course available from the sublime to the ridiculous to no avail. But I am not quitting. I am only dying, so my death serves a purpose. I am responsible, not guilty, for my last moments only. These I have done not in a moment of desperation, depression, or self-rejection. These I have done talking with God constantly for the last ten days in almost complete isolation from others. God, he wrote, does not punish guys like me to a life sentence of the soul. An epitaph of sorts appears in Pepe San Romain's most recent resume in his job applications. His work experience included political imprisonments. For previous employer, San Romain listed 2506 Assault Brigade. Under job title, he wrote Brigade Commander. Annual salary, he wrote none. Supervisor's name, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. And finally, reasons for leaving? Obvious. This epilogue salutes all of the Alabama National Guardsmen that volunteered for this mission and all of them that went to Guatemala to train the Cuban exiles. And it also salutes all of the pilots and men amongst those guardsmen that flew missions over Cuba on April 19, 1961. And finally, we share a moment of silence for the four Americans among them, Riley Schamberger, Wade Gray, Pete Ray, and Leo Baker, who gave their lives flying in those last missions in support of the cause. In 1960, Alabama's governor, John Patterson, received an unusual request, one that he ultimately approved. It was a request from General Reed Doster, who was commander of the Alabama Air Guard. It was straightforward enough. They would recruit Air Guard personnel from the Alabama Guard to assist the CIA. The role of these guardsmen was to train and advise the pilots of a resistance force that was made up of Cuban exiles to fly transport missions and to arm and maintain the planes. The Alabama Air Guard had been chosen because, well, they were the last American military unit to fly and maintain the obsolete B-26. In all, about 100 volunteered, and there were just 60 Alabamians recruited as CIA civilian contract personnel and then sent to Central America 
to train the Cuban exiles in 1961. Most of the recruits lived within 15 miles of the Birmingham airport, and they all had followed a similar path toward their moment in history. Some of them had service in the Air Force as aircraft mechanics, employment by Hayes Aircraft, time as weekend warriors in the Alabama Guard, and finally service as full-time Air Guard technicians. They were said to be a close-knit group. They were good old boys in its best sense, pulling their own weight and refusing to let a tough task beat them. This was a secret mission, and secrecy was a top priority. The 60 guardsmen volunteered to go south to Guatemala in 1961 under terms of absolute secrecy. Not even their families knew where they were going. They weren't donning any uniforms. They would wear civilian clothes during the entire event, except for the few moments at the end when they climbed into the planes. Soon, the Alabamians began to deploy in small groups to a training base in Guatemala. They would get to know and connect with these Cubans and their cause. And they worked hard to prepare the exiled Cubans to use the B-26s in combat. They fostered strong friendships while in Guatemala, friendships that grew with their Cuban exile comrades, and it gave these men even more reason to be committed to a cause that initially was not even theirs. But these proud men were also cold warriors, trying to keep communism from gaining a foothold in the Western Hemisphere. It would be the spring of 1961 when their part in the Cold War would suddenly make a pivot toward a hot war for both the Cubans and these guardsmen. You know the story of the air battle at the Bay of Pigs as we just told it in a few of the previous episodes. So we'll just pick the story up at that moment back in Puerto Cabezas where the invasion force was facing exhausted and overwhelmed Cuban air crews and a desperate situation on the ground in Cuba late in the invasion campaign had developed. At that point, the CIA finally authorized the Alabama Guardsmen to fly missions on April 19th, finally authorized to supplement the Cubans. The authorization came with a warning. Should they get captured, the United States government would declare to the world that the men were mercenaries and disavow any knowledge of their activities. Despite the grim prospect, four Alabama pilots and four crewmen stepped forward. The lead formation was commanded by Billy Dodo Goodwin, a major in the Air Guard, and Gonzalo Herrera, a fearless Cuban pilot known as El Tigre by his compatriots. Alabama Guard pilots Joe Shannon, Riley Schamberger, and Thomas Willard Pete Ray also volunteered. Crew members from Alabama included Leo F. Baker, Wade Gray, Nick Sedano, and James Vaughn. A second exile pilot, Mario Zaniga, and his observer rounded out the strike force that day. In the pre-dawn hours of April 19, 1961, these men climbed into six Douglas B-26 invaders, and they took off from Puerto Cabezas. They were headed north over the moonlit waters of the Caribbean toward Cuba. This last mission was, as we know, a desperate attempt to stave off defeat for the brigade of Cuban exiles stranded on the embattled beachhead, but still fighting for their lives. The twin-engine B-26s flew the mission in pairs, taking to the skies at 30-minute intervals to stagger their arrivals over the target area. We know the story, but I'll say it again. The B-26 crews were promised air cover from the Essex, 
which was a U.S. aircraft carrier that was then some 50 miles off the Cuban shore in international waters. But as the bombers arrived over the beachhead at sunrise, Castro's fighter jets lay in wait for them. And the promised air support from the Essex was nowhere to be seen. The two lead B-26s, piloted by Goodwin and Herrera, came under attack as they approached the beachhead, but managed to deliver their ordnance and return to Nicaragua. Joe Shannon managed to outmaneuver Castro's T-33 fighters, but Riley Schamberger's plane was hit as they approached the target area near the beach. When last glimpsed by another American B-26 pilot, their plane was only about 100 feet above the beach, and it was headed for the water at about 300 miles per hour. The plane hit the sea at a shallow angle. There were no survivors. Pete and Leo's aircraft was fired upon by at least one of the Cuban Air Force T-33 fighter aircraft, and it may also have been hit by the extensive ground fire that was occurring in the area. Their B-26 went down in a ball of fire, crash landing near the beach. Pete and Leo survived the crash and fled from the heavily damaged aircraft, but shortly thereafter, they were killed by Cuban militiamen. As the surviving B-26 crews flew out of the area, the jet fighters from the Essex finally appeared in the tragic mix-up related to the time of the attack, one that we described in the earlier episode as perhaps related to differences in time zones. And as a result, those jets off the deck of the Essex arrived an hour too late. After it was over, the surviving Alabamians were quickly and quietly brought back to Birmingham and told to forget the whole affair. There would be no service medals, no campaign streamers, and no parades. Despite the swirl of controversy surrounding the Bay of Pigs fiasco and their feelings of betrayal, Shannon and the other guardsmen kept their silence for decades. But their experience would become a distinctive part of Air Guard history. For the guardsmen who were part of that history, their silence was a badge of honor. The Bay of Pigs was a tragedy from which the Cuban exiles and their liberation movement would never recover. As Leo Baker's widow said so well, I lost a husband. They lost a country. Pete Ray was a 30-year-old pilot, and he was married with two children. His day job was technical inspector at Hayes Aircraft Corporation, which repaired and modified planes for the U.S. Air Force in Birmingham, Alabama. Leo Baker was Pete Ray's co-pilot, so to speak, and Leo was a native of Boston, and he was a former flight engineer at Hayes Aircraft Corporation as well. At the time he was recruited, Leo was managing two pizza parlors in the Birmingham area. Riley Schamberger was a former Air Force major, and he was an experienced pilot, and he was an instructor in the Alabama Air National Guard. He was also a test pilot for Hayes Aircraft Corporation as well. He was 36 years old, married, and he also was the father of two children. Wade Gray was Riley Schamberger's co-pilot. He was a former Air Force radio and electronics technician who also had worked for the Hayes Aircraft Corporation. As we said just a minute ago, after landing, Pete Ray and his flight engineer, Leo Baker, were discovered by Cuban soldiers after they had escaped from the crashed plane, and they were tracked down 
and then they were shot by Cuban militiamen. Baker had slightly darker skin than Ray, and so the fate of Baker was that he was to end up in a grave in Cuba, but not Ray. Ray's skin color was whiter and more akin to a Caucasian male that might have been easily identified as an American. And so, under that premise, Castro then collected his body and placed it on ice. He would subsequently make a definitive identification that, in fact, Ray was an American. Although the U.S. was desperately refusing to take any responsibility for the attack, Castro knew the CIA was the driving force behind the attack. He wanted to prove, without a doubt, that the U.S. had been involved, and so he thought that keeping Ray's body, the body of an American, was the best way to do it. However, the U.S. wouldn't budge. The CIA continued to deny any involvement, and therefore, Cuba wouldn't repatriate Ray's body. To the airman's family and friends, he'd simply vanished without any explanation, as they were unaware that the government knew exactly what had happened. In 1977, the silence was broken as the CIA declassified a number of critical documents. That year, the CIA posthumously awarded the four slain guardsmen the Distinguished Intelligence Cross, the agency's highest medal for bravery. After years of persistent prodding by Pete Ray's daughter, Janet Weininger, the U.S. government convinced Castro to return Ray's body in 1979 for a military burial at Forest Hills Cemetery overlooking the Birmingham airport. Despite the secrecy, these four men received four of the original 31 stars on the CIA Memorial Wall when it was created in 1974. As you know, I love to go on a good wander, and this has been a good long episode, but if you'll stick with me 10 minutes more, I'll peel the onion back one more layer and tell you a little bit about the story of how Pete Ray's body finally made its way back to the U.S., and a little bit about the trauma of the family that occurred all those years while they engaged in the process to do just that. As you all know, there is always a story underneath the story. You can continue to peel the layers back and just find more and more. And so it was as it relates to the story of Pete Ray. Most of what you'll hear next is a direct read from information that was contained on the cubanarchives.org site. You see, right after the Bay of Pigs, back in Alabama, Pete's family received word of his disappearance and presumed death. On that fateful day of April 1961, six-year-old Janet was at recess at Tarrant Elementary across the street from her maternal grandparents' house when a shiny, dark car pulled up at their house and three men dressed in suits got out. She knew something was unusual. When school was out that day, she rushed back home to find her grandfather there looking somber. 
and as if he had been crying. Her mother looked distraught and was barely able to talk. Janet recalled the events for the Palm Beach Post. And what I didn't realize is that it was that day that my mother slowly started to die. The bright, beautiful woman that I knew that was rated most poised in her high school yearbook slowly began to die. Her mother told her to stay close to home because she had something important to tell her. Janet later said that the men in suits, U.S. government operatives, had come to tell her the story that would be released to the press the following day. All they said was that Pete had died in the Caribbean Sea, providing no other details. Finally, she and her brother were told that God had come to take Daddy, who was now their guardian angel. After sobbing all day, she and her brother slept in their mother's bed, all of them crying. They had last seen Pete three weeks before the invasion, when he had come home for a visit. Now their lives were forever changed. The family lived secretively. They would not answer the phone, and she and her brother were not allowed to play outside. Janet felt marked and isolated at school, where the sight of the railings adjacent to the school courtyard looked to her like prison bars, reminding her she had heard Castro kept people in jail. Forever marked by her father's disappearance and the mystery surrounding his whereabouts, Janet grew up unwilling to accept her father's death unless she found substantiating evidence. She was determined to find the truth and, most importantly, justice. The U.S. government, however, denied any involvement in the invasion and declared that any American involved had been a mercenary. But Pete's wife knew the government was lying to the public. Before leaving, he had told her of his work for the CIA. The Rafe family was horrified that their beloved Pete had died in service for his country, a country that was now denying him rightful recognition for his honor. Worse yet, they grew increasingly frightened as strangers made threats when they tried to uncover the truth. Pete's mother contacted the general in charge of the airbase to try to find out more about her son's death. The following day, a man was hired at the J.C. Penney where she worked. He walked up to her in the lunchroom and told her she would be in trouble if she didn't stop asking questions about the Bay of Pigs and what had happened to her son. Several months later, when she quit, he quit. Eighteen months after the invasion, Castro began releasing some of the prisoners. One day, as Janet was on her way home from school, a strange man stopped her and asked her, is your daddy coming home today? When she heard this, she dropped her books and she ran home apprehensively. As the prisoners were flown in to Homestead Air Force Base in Miami, Florida, Janet watched the television coverage in hopes of coming across her father's familiar face, a face she so dearly longed to see. But her father was not among the men coming home. Janet's love for her father and her loyalty to him led her on an 18-year search to find him and to find out what had happened to him. As she got older, she would leave her tape recorder around the house to catch the adults' conversations. The eavesdropping provided her the names of other pilots or some of her father's friends. She carefully wrote them down in a spiral notebook 
so she could find them later on. She saved newspaper articles on any related subject matter. When she was older, she would go to the local library to look up more information. She carried with her everything she collected on her father, including an impression of his death. She knew that if she lost that material, it would hinder her search. Beginning at age 15 in 1970, Janet wrote monthly letters to Fidel Castro seeking information about her father's body. She wrote over 200 letters during nine years without receiving a response. When she got her driver's license, her investigation gained momentum. She traveled to libraries and to people's homes. She made calls to those whose names she had gathered. But she was only met with refusals, as government officials had also threatened them. The need for security before the Bay of Pigs operation might have been understandable in the immediate aftermath of the invasion. But once Robert Kennedy publicly conceded in 1963, the role of the United States and of the CIA in planning the invasion, it was hard to comprehend the continued cloaking of the story of the four Americans. As a college student on spring break, Janet traveled to Miami with a few of her friends, and while they went to the beach, she wanted her questions answered. She roamed the streets of Little Havana in hopes of finding someone who knew her father or knew of him. She gathered information piece by piece. The one thing she was told consistently was that her father had been a good pilot. During more trips to Miami and visits with Cubans in exile there, Janet found comfort in sharing the pain that engulfed her. She felt an instant kinship with the children of Cuban pilots who had never returned from the invasion. She was finally with people who understood her. And she realized why her father had given his life in an attempt to liberate Cuba. Her trips to Miami also provided a new wealth of information on her father. She heard there that they had seen a body, and there was a body, as well as photographs taken after his death. There were also rumors that a morgue in Havana was housing an American's body. As her hunt continued, Janet met her future husband, Mike Weininger. He was a pilot in training with the Air Force. She immediately felt comfortable. The smell of fuel and the flight suit reminded her of her dad. Though she didn't talk much about her father with Mike, he fully supported her dedicated pursuit. With the help of her cousin, Tom Bailey, a Birmingham News journalist, Janet began to persuade politicians to help her. While she sent telegrams to the presidential palace in Cuba, She held a local letter-writing campaign. She met Senator John Sparkman, whom she persuaded to work on the case, helping her write letters to Washington and to other influential people. She told Sparkman that the families of the four Americans had been promised medals by the CIA, medals that were never awarded. Shortly afterwards, the family was presented the highest awarded medal, the CIA's Distinguished Intelligence Cross, and the Exceptional Service Medallion. Finally, Pete's government had honored his devotion to duty and dedication to the national interests of the United States. The family had been told to keep it in secrecy, but Janet had her cousin journalist snap pictures of the men 
who came to deliver the award. Janet continued to push for answers from government officials. While living at the Hahn Air Base in Germany with her husband, on the 18th anniversary of her father's death, she received an envelope from Peter Wyden, who was writing a book on the invasion and had interviewed her months earlier. During the interview, he had mentioned coming across a picture taken by the Cuban government of two dead American pilots. The envelope contained a picture of her dead father. In the summer of 1979, the Cuban government finally caved in to the pressure. Confirming it had Pete Ray's body, it agreed to return it. For 18 years, it had remained frozen, intact, at a Havana morgue. They sent the Ray family a bill of over $30,000 for storage charges. Janet refused to pay. The body was still shipped back. Pregnant with her first child, Janet waited at Birmingham Municipal Airport for the plane carrying her father's body. Coincidentally, this was the same runway her father had taken off from some 18 years prior. At the morgue at Cooper Green Hospital, Janet, her husband, her cousin Tom Bailey, her brother, and her father's brother sat in front of Pete's coffin. Before the autopsy was performed, Janet insisted on seeing the body. She had traveled so far in her quest she wanted to see for herself. She needed closure. Thomas Pete William Ray was buried on December 8, 1979, with full military honors. There was a 21-gun salute, and four jets flew overhead in his memory. Janet tucked a five-page letter she had written to him into the pocket of her father's uniform. It spoke of her happiness over his return home and how proud she was of him. In it, she wrote to him that at first she didn't understand why he had risked his life to fight in someone else's war. But after years of talking to Cuban veterans and their families, she knew he had done it for the sake of freedom. Thank you for listening to episode 150 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>